Talking Tech Policy is recorded on Ngunnawal lands. We pay our respects to the traditional custodians of this land and acknowledge their continuing connection to country and the ongoing contributions of their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were, among many things, the first Australian tech innovators. How do we ensure technology makes our lives better? Hi, I'm Johanna Weaver, host of the Talking Tech Policy podcast. I'm a lawyer, a diplomat, and until recently, I was Australia's expert to the United Nations on cyber issues. I've since joined the Australian National University, where I've established the Tech Policy Design Centre. We've launched this podcast because we want to encourage more people to get involved in discussions about how technology is shaping our lives. Today, we're going to talk about tech and climate change. My guest is Professor Lachlan Blackall. He's the Entrepreneurial Fellow and Head of the Battery Storage and Grid Integration Program here at ANU. Professor Blackall has many impressive titles. He's a senior member of the Institute of Electronic Engineers and a fellow of both the Institute of Engineers of Australia and the Australian Academy of Technology and Engineering. Lachlan has also founded several companies um, and he's published a blog, uh, which we'll talk about during the podcast today, called The Death of a Startup, which is um, back from 2015, but a really interesting um, product. Uh, Lachlan, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks very much for having me. So we thought we'd start with a really simple, easy question for you, which is, will technology save us from climate change? I'm not sure any climate change related question is easy given what we're seeing at the moment. But certainly technology has a role to play in addressing climate change. But I think it's sort of unhelpful to think of technology being the solution. Mm. Um, and certainly not, you know, technology is not the solution in and of itself. So you know, from my perspective, technology will play a really important role in helping us achieve decarbonisation. But we need to think about technology as, you know, a tool to achieve that rather than the outcome in itself. Yeah. So... I think that's probably a good jumping in point to tell us a little bit more about what it is that you do and your team does. So can you just give us the elevator pitch, if you like, for what you do at the Battery Storage and Grid Integration Program? As you said, I head up the Battery Storage and Grid Integration Program, and our mission is to design and implement the building blocks of a decarbonised and resilient um, energy system for the benefit of all um, energy users. So I'll unpack that a little bit yeah. um, for you. So we've got a team of about 50 um, staff and students, um, and we tend to do our work across four key themes. So the first of those is looking at new battery materials um, and new battery devices, um, particularly thinking about you know the kind of batteries that we're going to need beyond lithium storage. So you know new types of battery chemistry, sodium batteries, potassium batteries. The second thing we do is think a lot about how we model energy systems in the broad sense. And so that means developing mathematical models of the electricity system, for example, but also thinking about how we model all of the different pieces of energy systems that plug into one another. So yes, there's the electricity system, which is probably what we tend to think of you know, most when we're thinking about decarbonisation, but there's also the transportation mm. um, system there's buildings, there's land and agricultural use. And so actually thinking about how you model all of those different energy systems and how they interact is pretty crucial. Mm. The third thing we do 
is focus on, you know, once you have these models, you can start to think about how you actually um, orchestrate all of these energy systems to work together to achieve economy-wide decarbonisation. And certainly, last but not least, we have a really strong focus on sort of social science, economics, policy, and regulation. And the reason for that, and this really goes back to my first answer, is that you know we often hear a lot about the role that technology will play, mm. and certainly technology and technical solutions are important. But in the broad sense, these are actually socio-techno-economic problems. And so for a program like us, we really have to approach it holistically. And so by having social scientists, by having a focus on economics and policy, we can bring together that socio-techno-economic approach to help us achieve energy transition and ultimately, therefore, to achieve decarbonisation. This is probably a very difficult question, but what does success look like for you and your team? Say we're 10 years in advance, you now have a Nobel Prize for the incredible work that you have done. What is it that you will have achieved at that point? I think success is easy to state in this context, but very hard to achieve. Yeah. And ultimately, that would be that we, you know, in 10 years are well on the way to decarbonizing our economy. Yeah. And 30 years from now that we've actually achieved net zero um, globally. Mm. Um, there's notable exceptions, obviously, in some countries having net zero targets by 2060. Mm. But the point still holds. In order to actually achieve that level of success, though, goes well beyond what a team like us can achieve on our own. And so we're thinking about how all of society is going to come together, you know, researchers, industry, government, the community at large, to actually, you know, achieve an extraordinary energy transition, mm. which will be needed to get us to, um, you know, to net zero, which ultimately will hopefully allow us to, um, to address the challenges of climate change. One of the big catch cries that came out of the Glasgow COP26 conference was technology, not taxes. And when I say one of the big things, out of the Morrison government. Um, one of the things that really fascinated me about that conversation was a question about does, does the technology that we need to assist us to getting to net zero already exist or is that technology technology that still needs to be invented? And there was a really interesting discussion at the time and I'm, I'm just interested in your thoughts on, on how much of this technology exists and it's a question of incentivising its use and how much actually is uh, innovation that needs to happen. In very simple terms, we have overwhelmingly the technology that we need mm. in order to achieve decarbonisation in the energy sector. So, you know, the energy system of the future is going to be characterised by having significant amounts of renewable generation and significant amounts of storage. And in both of those um, areas, we have quite mature technologies. So on the energy generation side, wind and solar yeah. um, in particular, on the storage side, you know, there's been a lot of work in batteries and various battery chemistries, um, an emerging interest in pumped hydro, which itself is actually a very mature technology mm. that's been developed for over 100 years. The challenge that I have with this sort of, you know, technology centric approach is it makes the assumption that you can simply take technology and go and park it somewhere and that everything will be solved. And from our work, particularly our work in the social sciences, where we're talking to people and talking to communities, it becomes very clear that, you know, people actually have desires and expectations. They want to understand what their future is going to look like. So when we think about, you know, how they will um, use and take up that technology, there's actually quite a lot of really important work 
to be done. We've seen this previously around the social license questions for wind, and we're seeing it now at the moment around social license questions for transmission. Yeah. Yeah. And so if we take this technology-centric approach, we're going to miss the important opportunity here, which is actually to design for what people and communities want. And so often I think about the work that we do in the social sciences specifically, but also more broadly in terms of just how we talk to people and communities that we want to measure twice and cut once. And so if we take that people-centric view of the world, we will actually work out what the future energy system should be. And then certainly as an engineer or someone who, you know, who is invested in the building of technology, we can then build the technology that we actually need to achieve that outcome rather than the sort of technology-centric approach where you sort of build it and hope they'll come. And I think we've seen definitely in recent times that that's not the case. So one of the catch cries that is around much of this debate is electrify everything. And I have a really vivid memory um, back in early 2020 of reading Ross Garno's book, Superpower. I just managed to make it out of uh, the bushfires down on the south coast of New South Wales, where we had massive fires for a very long period of time, made it back to Canberra, where we were shrouded in smoke. And I sat on my couch reading this book and it gave me such a sense of hope. Uh, he, he really sets out a quite clear pathway, not only for how we achieve decarbonisation, but also uh, a story for how Australia should be a superpower in doing so because we have the natural resources. There are other books that have been written. Um, I think Sol Grithin's book, uh, The Big Switch, is another one. And it's also picked up in novels as well. We, we spoke um, over dinner a, a couple of weeks ago about Ministry of the Future. Can you explain what Electrify Everything actually means and where Australia's competitive advantage is in this space? I mean, I, I think from one sense it's self-evident we're a sunny, large country, but to get a little bit more down in the nitty-gritty of it. Yeah, absolutely. To me, the catch cry of Electrify Everything is a very sensible one. Mm. And the reason that it's sensible is that, particularly in the Australian context, we know how to decarbonise our electricity supply. And we do that through the use of renewable generation like wind and solar. And so the uptake of renewables in Australia is, you know, amongst the fastest, if not the fastest in the world. Mm. And so we know that if we can decarbonize our electricity supply and then if we electrify everything else, mm. that we will that will be a really sensible pathway to achieve decarbonization economy wide. So when you speak about electrify everything else. What do you mean by everything else? We tend to think of there being five key sectors in the economy. And so electricity um, is one of those. Buildings are the second, uh, industry the third, uh, transport the fourth, yep. and land and agriculture yep. is the fifth. And so if we can use renewable generation, we can decarbonize the electricity sector. Mm -hmm but we then have to decarbonize these other four sectors. Mm -hmm. And particularly, you know, a sector like transport, we are producing carbon emissions by burning fossil fuels. Yeah. And so, you know, the notion of electrifying everything is that if you can take your transport sector to being fully electric, then you benefit from the decarbonization that's been achieved in the electricity sector and you can wean yourself off uh, fossil fuels. When you say that, it sounds actually quite simple, but obviously it's an enormous challenge. From a policy perspective, what do you think the key policy changes that need to be made uh, to support the electrification of everything? So whenever we think about 
energy transition or we think about decarbonisation, I think it's really important that we do think about it as this socio-techno-economic yeah. challenge. And when we frame it in that way, we can start to sort of unpack the key things that we need to achieve. So it is easy to state, but very, very hard mm. to achieve. Um, and so let, you know, let's start with the technology side of things. We have a lot of the technology that we need, but we do need to integrate it together and get it to work, to work together. And that's non-trivial. So you think about the transition from potentially hundreds of large-scale fossil fuel-fired generators that we have today mm. to potentially tens of millions of solar panels, batteries, electric vehicles mm. that are going to be integrated into the grid mm. over the next couple of decades. So there's some really interesting engineering work um, to be done in order to achieve that. At the same time, though, you need to uh, ensure that when people and communities are out there investing in these new assets, in solar for their roof or in batteries for their homes or an electric vehicle, that they actually have the ability to understand how they will benefit from those purchases. There's a lot of talk about you know, integrating all of these assets into the system and allowing them to participate in markets and to for customers to earn revenue streams or to save money on their electricity bill, all of which is great. But we ultimately need to ensure that there is a mechanism by which they can participate that is fair and equitable and easy for them to understand mm. so that when they are buying these assets, they can be assured that actually they're going to get the benefits that come from, from buying them. I think on the policy side of things, recognizing that this is a socio-techno-economic challenge yeah. rather than a technology-only um, requirement will actually make it much easier to then think about the kind of regulation that we need, the kind of customer protections um, that are going to be needed, the um, communication that government needs to make to citizens to actually help them understand the transition that's underway. So this is a podcast about tech policy, regulation and the like. So the, the next question goes to the nerd in me, which is the role of policy and regulators as enablers in energy transition. You've touched on some of those things there, maybe to move you more towards the regulator perspective. So the role of regulators uh, in encouraging take up of these things, but also creating the conditions, which goes to the point that you were making. So from my perspective, both policy and regulation they sort of set the rules of the road. Mm. And by setting sensible rules, um, we can ensure that we get good outcomes for people um, and communities. I think one of the challenges that we see in the energy sector is that because we're changing from a very old paradigm of how the grid will operate to a new paradigm of how the grid will operate, we need to ensure that policymakers and regulators are actually aware of how this change is occurring. And I think, unfortunately, there's a very economic-centric view of how our energy systems currently operate. And that's really driven by the fact that over the last 20 years, there has been a focus on market mechanisms. But new energy systems you know, basically expose us to different physics, mm -hmm. um, same old physics, but applied in different ways. Yeah. And so we need to be thinking about, it's okay to have markets, but physics is going to beat markets any day of the week. And so we need to be designing a system that actually ensures that we have a sensible technical approach, that we have you know, sensible market um, design around that, but most importantly, that it actually is a system that people and communities 
want and actually operates for their benefit. Moving, say, 10 years, so not into science fiction realm, but 10 years in advance, what do you think the grid will look like at the community level for people? Can you paint a picture? Absolutely. So the grid of the future will look quite a bit different from the grid of the past. And so the way I like to think about it is, you know, if we go back um, 50 years or so, we had large centralised, largely fossil fuel fired generation. And I sort of think of that as being at the centre of the grid. Then we had the transmission network and the distribution network. So that's all the poles and wires, the big poles and wires for the transmission network, and then the poles and wires in your street and the distribution network. And energy flowed from the large fossil fuel fired generators out to customers yeah. um, where it was needed. And so this kind of one way flow um, of energy, you know, very easy to understand. We built our operation of our system around, um, around this paradigm. So where we're going into the future is we're now thinking about possibly up to 50% of the generation and storage capacity will now live with customers Mm. in their homes, in their communities. And so this will be solar panels on their roof, batteries out the back, an electric vehicle in their garage, um, potentially a community or a neighborhood battery in their street um, or in their suburb. And so the paradigm has now dramatically shifted from these one-way flows from large centralized generators out to customers to being these dynamic two-way flows from where energy is generated to where energy is consumed or where it's stored. And so this fundamentally changes the paradigm of how our energy systems are operating. And so it will, you know, it will change the technologies, the markets, the policies, the regulation um, mm. that we're going to need to enable this. And in a nutshell, am I correct in saying that the role of your team is essentially looking at how we make the batteries of tomorrow more efficient for that? We do have a strong focus on kind of battery storage, yeah. and particularly the team in chemistry. Yeah. I'm very interested in you know new battery devices, new materials for battery storage. I think more broadly, the team as a whole is really interested in how we achieve energy transition. Yeah. And so that's not just focused to thinking about the batteries of tomorrow, but thinking about how we actually integrate all of these yeah. technologies Hence and capabilities part of your title. Yeah. together. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. the grid integration challenge is actually a very significant challenge um, because it, it really goes to the heart of how you actually get all of these pieces to work together but also how those technology pieces um, work, intera- you know, interact with markets yeah. and work for the benefit of people and communities. Mm. And one of the really interesting pieces around, uh, you, you've talked a lot about empowering consumers and having consumers understand and have knowledge. And we have this really interesting policy in Australia called the Consumer Data Right, which is based around empowering people to have greater access to and control over their data to be able to compare and switch products and services. And this Consumer Data Right has been conceived in the broad, but at least in Australia, has been applied in the first instant to energy markets and also to banking. Can you tell us a little bit about how it works and do you think that is a useful tool for giving agency back to individuals in this circumstance? Certainly more information, more data is helpful to people and to communities mm. and it gives them you know, greater ability to have choice. 
probably one of the challenges in the energy context mm. is that it's so complicated that it's not necessarily clear that having that data will ultimately empower customers in the way that we hope it, it might, mm. insofar as we could give customers access to all of their, their metering data, but whether or not that will then result in them getting a better electricity deal or easier access to new technologies, I think does remain an open question. Mm. The other challenge too is that a consumer data right suggests that all of the data is actually going to be available. Mm -hmm. And from our work in the sector, we know that the availability of data is a challenge that the whole industry is facing, mm -hmm. how best to aggregate it, how best to share it. And so those challenges will also apply for people and for communities. On the basis that people and communities can get access to the data and that it's then used to provide more choice and to more clearly articulate the benefits for people and communities, I'm obviously hugely mm. um, supportive of. But I think simply having the consumer data right doesn't ensure that outcome. Mm. You need to go beyond simply the sharing of data to actually making sure that that data is shared and used by others um, mm. for the benefit of people. Yeah. And I think this is definitely another podcast, but I'm particularly interested in the potential application of the consumer data right to things like social media and, you know, what would happen if you had the ability to actually be able to see the the data that is held about you by social media companies uh, and then also to have the ability, portability, so the ability to use, to take your data somewhere else um, because I think one of the the sort of lock-in factors that we currently have around social media is, well, if I leave this particular platform, I'm leaving behind all of the connections and networked and the network effect. But it certainly is a, a another podcast. But I, I think your your point about having the data and that not being enough is a really uh, important one and it comes out in a lot of the conversations that we have. People seem to think that just because we have more information that it's better or that we can somehow magically use that and it's a bit of a myth in terms of the actual application of it. I think the other challenge too of energy data mm. is that it actually contains quite a lot of private information. Yeah. And so, for example, you know, I used to build technology to monitor home energy consumption and I had one of our monitors in our home. Mm. And at the time, my wife was working from home. So I could hop on and look at our data, you know, how much energy we were consuming at any point in the day. And it gave me a very clear understanding of what my wife was doing. Mm. I could see when she was cooking toast in the morning. I could see when she was showering. And that's actually quite creepy yeah. when you think about it. Yeah. And for me, it, it did raise a really interesting question of, you know, as one of the owners of our apartment at the time, I was able to sign up for you know, this service mm. to monitor the energy consumption in the home. Mm. But the signature of the data I was looking at was actually generated by my wife. And mm. so whether or not I should have access mm. to data that allowed me to understand what she was doing, I think is a really thorny ethical question. And it would carry across into the, you know, into any consumer data right because Absolutely. not only would that data then be able to be shared within a household, but it can be shared with others. And the it might the intent might well be to allow you to compare electricity tariffs, but you don't know what other purposes people will use 
um, the data for. Yeah, and then the aggregation of that data with other data sources that exist. Absolutely fascinating. And and, um, for listeners of the podcast, we'll drill down on that uh, on another episode. Hey, listeners, we need your help. We're running a competition to find a better name for this podcast. We're looking for a one-word title that conveys that we're talking about tech policy, but in a more sexy way. We want to convey that this is about tech policy, not technology, and we're looking for a name that conveys a sense of urgency and opportunity. Because the decisions that we make about technology policy today will shape the world that we live in tomorrow. Send us your suggestions to techpolicydesign at anu.edu.au. And if your suggestion is the winning suggestion, we will send you a swag of Tech Policy Design Centre goodies, our first report, an amazing colouring in of our cover art, and some other fun things that we find about the office. But for now, let's go back to our chat with Professor Blackall. I'm really interested, Lachlan, you have a, a great perspective on the word innovation and what innovation means and particularly perhaps a different interpretation than I had previously heard. And this comes from uh, one of the posts that you have on your blog, Death of a Startup. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because I I think it frames the conversation in a very different way and I, I really like it. You might need to remind me actually what I wrote all those, <laughs> <laughs> all those years ago. But I think, you know, from my recollection and certainly how I do think of innovation, you know, innovation is the process of challenging the status quo yeah. and of achieving a future that's better than, than what we have today. Yeah. And inherent to that, in my mind, is a positive and beneficial outcome for people and communities. And so it's been an interesting journey personally because you know, I had a very classical engineering education. And so my approach to the engineering of things was heavily driven by this notion of optimality. Mm. But when I think about innovation, I have always thought of innovation as needing to have a positive outcome for society Mm. um, as well. And it's only really been through, you know, my work over recent years and particularly the appreciation of the role that, you know, social science plays in understanding truly that, you know, Engineering and technology are are important tools to solving problems, but we ultimately are doing that in service of people and communities. And if we lose sight of that, we end up in outcomes that are far from optimal. Mm. So I'll read you what you said uh, back in 2015, um, which may make you cringe, but I I don't think it will, apart from maybe the reference to Latin. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So look up a dictionary and you'll typically see that innovation means to introduce something new. But innovation actually comes from the Latin word innovare, meaning to change. And it's this latter definition that resonates most strongly to me. And then you go on to to describe a few different things. And then you say, condensing the previous two paragraphs, innovation is simply passionate people working collectively to change the world. So do you agree with yourself from 2015? I was very articulate back in in 2015. The, The Latin is a little cringy, I will admit. I absolutely, absolutely agree with that. I think the, you know, certainly having come through the startup ecosystem, Mm. I think we sometimes develop this unhealthy obsession with we are going to be changing the world. But I think that view that you want to be changing the world for the better is a really important one to hold close. And that's something that really does drive, you know, what I do personally and what the team does more broadly. 
you know, we genuinely believe that the work that we're doing can have an impact on the future. And working in an area like energy and climate change, you know, we, we need really profound change um, for the future. Mm. And so that sense of purpose um, really gets all of us out of bed in the morning. Yeah. And so we're just finalizing the Tech Policy Design Center's first major report, which is looking at tech regulators. And we, we've interviewed a number of very senior uh, Australian regulators, public servants, and uh, a number of people from industry. And one of the, the key findings from the report is that actually everybody that we interviewed have a sense of a strong sense of purpose, this purpose that you're describing here about actually we want to have a positive impact on the world. And it, it's, it's sad to me that that sense of purpose has been infected with a cynicism, you know, that people who work in technology want to change the world. Oh, yeah, sure, they want to change the world. Uh, actually, they want to make money. When actually when you talk to people who design and make tech, that sense of purpose is still really, really strong. But likewise, that sense of purpose among public servants, you know, public servants do their job because they want to be of service to the public. Uh, regulators are looking to have a positive impact for Australians. And, and it, it's just more of an observation than anything else that we don't harness that sense of purpose, the collective sense of purpose, as opposed to just the tech industry having that sense of purpose or government having that sense of purpose. I think um, we would unlock something potentially quite special if we are able to do that. It's a really important point to make. And it's one of the reasons why I think focusing narrowly on technology is a bad outcome. Because ultimately, we do want to harness the purpose that all people in the community have. Yeah. And I'm relentlessly optimistic about the future yeah. on the basis that overwhelmingly, you know, people, communities are actually committed to achieving a future that is better than what we have today. Yeah. And particularly in kind of energy and climate, it's easy to get caught up in the politicization of those topics. But when you talk to people, overwhelmingly, we all agree in where we're going. Yeah. And that's to a future that is going to be decarbonised. You mentioned their politicisation and we're recording this in the middle of the Australian election campaign. I'm not going to ask you uh, to do the impossible and, and comment on various campaign commitments. But what I would like you to do is if there was one element of the politicised debate that you could have a magic wand and remove or fix or uh, change the way that politicians talk about these things, what would it be? So many choices. <laughs> I think the one that would be most helpful, though, would be to stop prosecuting the question of whether climate change is a thing. Yeah. You know, climate change is real. The science is overwhelming. It's really important that we focus on how we address climate change through decarbonisation. And if you look at so much of the political debate, it's still mired in this question of, you know, is climate change a thing? Should we even be thinking about it? Should we go to net zero? Very topical subject at the moment. Absolutely. So the government obviously has committed to go to net zero mm. by 2050. And then there's some questions now within um, by some people within government as to whether or not that's a real target um, or not. To me, the setting of the target was a really important um, outcome and we need to now think about how we get there. And so I think if we stop asking the question of is climate change real, climate change is real, 
we need. You heard it here first, folks. Absolutely. Luckily, I'm not the first person to say it. Um, <laughs> and if you look at the scientific evidence, it goes back, you know, it goes back decades. And in actual fact, there were there's interesting articles in newspapers back in the 1920s mm. asking whether or not carbon emissions would actually lead to bad outcomes mm. for the planet. So we've known about climate change for a very long time and definitely the, the science on climate change is, um, is overwhelming, mm. um, as I've said. So if we accept that, we accept the fact that Australia and almost all you know, countries on the planet now have decarbonisation commitments, net zero commitments mm. between sort of 2050 and 2060. To me, I would prefer to see politicians debating on how ambitious we can be in achieving our decarbonisation goals. So one wish, stop focusing on is climate change a thing and just get on with solving it. It's a pretty good wish. Let's pivot a little bit now and focus on uh, your experiences of founding uh, tech companies. I really do commend your blog, uh, Death of a Startup, to everyone. We'll put a link in the in the pod notes. And in Death of a Startup, you tell the journey of establishment and then the ultimate demise of one of your companies, um, Simply Show Me. We have an extract here from a blog, which I'm going to pass to you to read, which is um, a little bit mean of me. I'm interested in hearing you say those words out loud again, but then also to get your reflections of advice to people who would maybe listening to this and contemplating doing something new, doing something courageous, and whether these words still stand. So um, handing it over with trepidation there. We'll see how articulate I was in this blog post. <laughs> it's cruel, isn't it? It is. So here we go. There's no shame in failing. Indeed, the death of a business is not, as many would suggest, a failure. When startups die, the sky does not fall. The earth does not shake. It's just an absence. An absence of a story that once enveloped us. This is a story of such a startup. Simply show me. It's as faithful a retelling of the story as my memory allows. I hope in the telling of its story, we can find lessons and aspirations for the future. So I was reasonably articulate. Yeah, in that, I uh... mean, it's very, it's incredibly <laughs> poetic. Sorry, I'm embarrassing you by making you read it, but but it's incredibly poetic. And what I found so refreshing about this, and we were talking about this on the walkover, is the way that you have described failure, and you, you've had successful companies as well, but the way that you seize on that as an opportunity. And I, I think more people need to do this. It's, you know, we talk about not being scared to fail, but very few people have actual examples where they've done that and and turned it into, sorry, not where they've done it, but where they've spoken about it quite so eloquently that I've, that I've come across. Yeah, it's interesting rereading that actually. And the process of reading it actually is quite emotive yeah. still, even many years on um, from the experience. I suppose to put in context what I was talking about um, was a company that I started in probably 2011-ish, you know, raised a little bit of money um, from several investors. We had a small team. We were building, we were essentially building, you know, video messaging um, technologies for businesses. Mm. So think about receiving your stretches and exercises from your personal trainer, which actually now is a, is a thing. And yeah. I see many apps that look a lot like this. We were perhaps ahead of our time. But we reached a point where we realized that actually our competition was, you know, YouTube. <laughs> and that's never a good position to find <laughs> yourself in. 
and it became pretty clear that the business was not going to be viable. You know, like a viable business actually earns enough money to pay everybody, and it was clear that that wasn't wasn't going to happen. And so we had this, you know, planned shutdown. Effectively, we knew when the money was going to run out. We uh, we told all the investors that the money was going to run out. Um, we sort of wound everything up. And the way I reflect on that is that actually you can fail well. Mm. We we answered the question: Can you successfully make a business built around video messaging? The answer at the time was no, you can't. And so what was interesting to me was that instead of investors sort of being angry about that. Mm they were quite comfortable with the fact that they had invested money for us to answer that question. It was just unfortunate that we'd answered it in the negative. Yeah. And so to me, what I, what I took away from that and what I take away from ongoing failure, because we all fail, is that actually if you take the lessons away, you give yourself every chance to be more successful in future mm. because the goal is not to make the same mistake twice. Mm. You can't guarantee you're never going to make mistakes. But if you're making the same mistake twice, you're definitely not learning um, from the lessons that you should have. You heard it here. This is the wise words uh, of Lachlan Blackall. One of the other things that you have reflected on is that ideas are exceedingly, or the concept that ideas are exceedingly valuable. And a conclusion that you came to was that ideas are actually inherently worthless. And this was in the context of, you know, the people and the environment. Can you expand a little bit on that? Yeah, I think we definitely need some context around a comment, <laughs> a comment like that. So ideas are hugely interesting and hugely important mm. uh, to the world. But the point I was making when I wrote that was that it's what happens after you have the idea. Yeah. And so it's not that I think ideas are, are worthless, but I think ideas are cheap in the context of it can be quite quick, quite easy to have an idea. Mm. And then you may spend years or decades trying to bring that idea to fruition. And I think if we celebrate the concept of ideas in isolation, we forget about the hard yards of implementation mm. and the doing. And so I think we, we should celebrate the doing um, as well. And if you look at where really significant impact is achieved, it's in taking a good idea, but then actually implementing it and implementing it at scale. Mm. And particularly in the sector I now work in, you know, in energy and climate, you know, we need great ideas as to how we are going to achieve an energy transition, how we're going to achieve decarbonisation, but we have decades um, of work ahead of us. Mm. And so our focus on the doing of that work over the coming decades, I think is really important. Mm. And the people that you do it with as well. I think uh, that that also came out in the writing that you had done. And this is probably a good time for me to uh, have a shout out to my team um, at the Tech Policy Design Centre, because I think having the right people around you as you're embarking upon a journey of building something makes such a difference. And I'm very lucky to have an extraordinary team uh, around us. And I know uh, you, you currently have all of your team here in Canberra, um, which is an unusual occurrence to have all of you in one place. So I'm sure you've got some of that same sentiment going on. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the people that you're on the journey with really make the process enjoyable. Yeah. And I think, you know, this really goes back to the prior point too around ideas. You know, ultimately, you know, we've got a team of 50 staff and students now based all over Australia. So it is great to actually have them all yeah. um, in Canberra heading off to some lawn bowls tonight as you oh, do. Oh, nice, nice. But it's important, I think, to recognize too that, you know, now I represent one fiftieth um, of the team that is working um, on these topics 
And that's actually quite quite a humbling experience, you know, to be part of a group of people who are willing to head along, you know, with a common vision really makes it all worthwhile. One of the things that really stands out to me and has stood out in the interactions that we've had is that you work in one of the most politicised fields from an academic perspective on some of the most difficult challenges intellectually, and yet you retain this sense of positivity and optimism. What's your secret? How do you do that? I just don't think it's going to work if we're not positive about what the future could be. Yeah. And so it is easy to get caught up in negativity or to see the challenges of, you know, political debate. Mm. But ultimately, you know, if not us, who is going to take the leadership to actually help us achieve decarbonisation to help us reach the future that we need to for the entire planet? You know, another key element of the positivity is having people around you who are aligned. And so being in the university environment, you know, is one example of that. Having our team, you know, the team with the battery storage and grid integration program, there just becomes this infectious enthusiasm that actually a small number of people can change the world. Mm. And ultimately we have to be successful in this endeavor. And it's not just us, it's everybody else as well. It's government, it's industry, it's the community at large. You know, we have a really big existential challenge mm. um, in front of us. And so we're going to need to be positive because over the next 30 years, there are going to be really significant challenges to achieving the goal that we're all aiming for. Thank you so much for joining us today. The last question that we put to all of our guests is recommendations of books or podcasts or Twitter follows, whatever, whatever your um, shtick is. If people are looking to learn more about these things, where should they go? The challenge of working in such a heavily politicized industry is that it can be hard to find trusted sources yeah. um, of information. What I'm going to suggest is not a real page turner um, of a read, but it's actually to go to the fundamental evidence. So, you know, be willing to actually engage with the research community. There's, you know, plenty of great researchers who are on Twitter. There's plenty of great articles that are written by researchers for public consumption, where they really do lay out the facts. Mm -hmm. um, if you think about, you know, the regulators, our market operator, they produce dozens of reports um, annually and they're great cures for insomnia, but they also lay out a very compelling vision um, for the future. And I think it's that compelling vision for the future that we're all in need of. Well, thank you for that. Um, I will now go and uh, download one of those tombs, but I, I do appreciate what you're saying about looking at the core sources uh, or the foundational sources and being able to actually identify where they are as someone from the outside is actually quite difficult. So that's a great steer for all of us. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks very much for having me. Talking Tech Policy is a podcast of the Tech Policy Design Centre at the Australian National University. This episode was produced by Jack Fox. Thanks also to Ben Gowdy for his research and post-production support. We would be most grateful if you could subscribe, rate the pod, leave us a review, or perhaps give us a shout out on social media or around the water cooler at work. All of these things help us to get the word out and the more interest we have, the better we can make the podcast. Please also do let us know if there's a topic that you would like us to cover in future episodes. Thank you for listening. And until next time, get in touch and get involved.